Well, welcome to the 10th episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell, family physician and prof at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, an evidence-based online primary care reference. Please check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. In Primary Care Update, we summarize recent research that we think is relevant to primary care medicine. Uh, the opinions expressed are those of the commentators. The podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. If you're a patient listening in, please talk to your primary care doctor about what you've heard. As usual, I'm joined by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of the Journal of Family Practice, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at Michigan State University. Hey, Henry, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm actually pretty excited. Tonight is date night. Uh, Terry and I are going to a special Martin Luther King celebration at MSU, and our keynote speaker is Dr. Uh, Mona Hanna-Atisha. She's a friend and colleague who uh, blew the, the, the um, roof off of the uh, lead crisis in Flint and just has become a rock star nationally. And I'm really looking forward to her comments around uh, social um, disparities and diversity and healthcare. Yeah, she's quite a hero for um, the primary care community in Michigan and uh, wrote a book, has won some national awards, has really uh, done some some great things. John, staying warm up in, into UP, into UP? Oh, yes. It's beautiful, sunny, beautiful white snow. And I think Val and I will have a home date tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Get, get a little, what did they call it in Denmark? Hugi? Hugi? Higgy? Hugi? <laughs> yes, that's right. Right. <laughs> you get that's cozy. the idea. <laughs> cozy. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, enough chit chat. It is time for the first poem. Uh, it is about linagliptin, uh, which is Trigenta. Uh, which is spelled T-R-A-D-J-E-N-T-A. I don't know why they had to stick that D in there, but uh, Trigenta and its effect on cardiovascular mortality. This is one of a series of studies that the FDA has made these companies do because in the past, some other classes of uh, diabetes medications have been shown to increase cardiovascular problems. And so um, they've made all the companies do this. Uh, this one is the Carmelina randomized trial. It was published in JAMA November 9th, 2018. So this was a randomized controlled trial, uh, a very large trial. They had 6,991 adults with type 2 diabetes. They all had an A1C that was between 65 and 10%. Uh, they uh, also all had known vascular disease, and they all had moderately impaired renal function. So this was a pretty high-risk group. Uh, renal risk was defined as having an uh, estimated GFR between 45 and 75 a urine albumin to creatinine ratio higher than 200, or if they had a lower GFR, they could just get in by having a GFR 15 to 45. In any case, very high risk group. They were randomized to linagliptin, five milligrams once daily or placebo. Main outcome was the usual cardiovascular uh, death, non-fatal MI and stroke combination. The outcomes were determined by researchers who were masked to the treatment assignment, which is good, and they followed 99% of the patients for a median of just over two years, which is not a great follow-up time, but given the high risk of the patients, that's probably long enough to see enough outcomes. Uh, they used intention-to-treat analysis, sort of as randomized, and they found no significant differences in the primary composite outcome between linagliptin and control groups, about 12.4 versus 12.1%. There were also no differences in secondary outcomes to do with end-stage renal disease, all-cause mortality, or hospitalization for heart failure. The incidence of pancreatic cancer 
in the linagliptin group, and this class of drugs is known for, uh, at least in animal models, causing pancreatic cancer, uh, was 11 versus 4 cases. So it wasn't statistically significant, but potentially clinically significant, uh, and it's still a bit worrying, I would say. So bottom line, this study was ordered by the FDA to make sure the drug didn't increase cardiovascular events. My takeaway is that it also doesn't decrease cardiovascular events or mortality. It does lower A1C by about a half a percent. Um, and as the author of this poem, I think it might have been you, and no, it's Dave Slauson, said, uh, it doesn't appear to do much more than make the numbers look better and help you hit your pay for performance measures. John, are, do you like this drug? Do you have anything you can add? Well, to let, let me put summary? it this way. First of all, if I were the drug company, I would not have published the study in JAMA because I don't think the manufacturers would want this word to get out. The problem is that other new diabetes medications such as empagliflozin decreases cardiovascular events. So this drug is not going to be competitive. So I think this is bad news for the company that makes the drug. Yeah, they're they're going to argue that it was a designed to be a non inferiority trial, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I really, it was a large enough trial and a high enough risk group. I would have expected to see if there was going to be a benefit, some benefit. Mm -hmm. Henry, any comments? Yeah, so we have a large amount of data out there that shows that paying attention to glucose is neither necessary nor sufficient to make our patients with diabetes live longer or better. Uh, metformin and certainly other medications, as John has pointed out, improve cardiovascular outcomes independent of whether they actually do anything to the blood sugar. And that's really quite critical that we actually focus on the patient-relevant outcomes. In this particular study, not only were the patient-important outcomes the common ones that typically um, affect the morbidity and mortality of our patients with diabetes were not improved, then you add, even if it's a tiny risk of uh, pancreatic cancer, that's just a calculus that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, if you believe the if the eleven versus four is real, it's about one extra case per five hundred patients, and um, yeah, I, I, I agree completely with you. I, I just don't see a huge role for this uh, drug at all. And you know, my personal, I'm totally happy when my type two diabetic patients um, are in the you know seven to eight percent range. Uh, I, I don't like, I, I'm, you know, maybe I'm old fashioned Henry. I still don't like seeing them around eight and a half, nine, nine and a half, but uh, I certainly don't worry about uh, getting them below seven uh, unless they happen to be below seven already. And then, you know, if they're doing fine at six and a half percent, then they're otherwise healthy. Sure. But, you know, the, uh, I think the rigorous uh, adherence to these less than 7% targets is just not borne out by the evidence. I hear you. Um, let's see, we got a quiz. Henry, Henry is our quiz master and he has come up with another question for us. Yeah, so this quiz is in honor of the 55th anniversary of the very first Surgeon General report that declared that cigarettes are hazardous to our health. Which of the following is most effective in helping a cigarette smoker to quit? One, plain old cold turkey. Two, substitute cigarettes with marijuana. Three, e-cigarettes. Four, nicotine gum. Five, stage-appropriate tailored advice. Stay tuned. Thanks, Henry. We'll get the answer later in the in the show. Uh, John, I think you're up with the next poem. Yes, this is a, a great poem, a great study. 
the question to answer in the study is whether a Tai Chi program is effective in preventing falls in independently living elderly patients. This was published by Harmer et al. and Lee in JAMA Internal Medicine 2008, volume 178, page 1301. Here's the study. They enrolled 670 patients, average age of 77.7, so these were not spring chickens, all independently living, and all had fallen at least once in the previous 12 months, so they were thought to be at risk for future falls, but they were ambulatory and uh, by and large had some limitation on mobility. About half were women, a little more than half, and most were white. The patients were assigned to one of three different groups. Uh, There were one to three 60-minute exercise programs conducted twice weekly for a full six months. One program was stretching. Another was multimodal exercise with strength balance training, et cetera. And the final one was the Tai Chi program called Tai Chi Quan, uh, Moving for Better Balance. So it it appears to be a patented program that's specifically tailored for older adults to improve balance. They studied these patients over six months, and during the time of the study, they recorded the fall. So they weren't looking out beyond six months. And a full 48% of the participants reported having a fall during that time. But there were many fewer falls in the Tai Chi group and, by the way, in the structured strengthening program compared to the stretching group. For the Tai Chi group, it was eight falls versus 24 which was an NNT of approximately 12 to prevent one fall, although there wasn't a difference in serious falls at any rate. So the bottom line is that the Tai Chi program, which is those slow, graceful movements that require balance and focus, does help older people in maintaining their balance and avoiding falls. This is not the first study of Tai Chi for older adults. I think it's pretty convincing that this type of a program is good, especially for more frail elderly adults who are more likely to fall and get injured from falls. So I definitely would endorse this. Henry, what do you think? So in 1986, I got a chance to spend a month in China as a a part of an exchange program with the Eisenhower Foundation. There was a group of physicians who spent a month there. And every morning I would get up early and go for a walk. And you would see all of these older individuals out in the street doing and in the parks uh, doing Tai Chi. I had no idea what it was, but as John pointed out, it was just beautiful to see these people out there doing these slow rhythmic movements. There was no music. And and I've learned a lot since then. And as John points out, this is truly uh, remarkable in terms of the consistency and improving balance. I, I would not be internally consistent if I did point out that because there was no difference in serious injury, which is what we're trying to prevent but compared with the other uh, program of, of strength and balance, um, not so it's not just unique to the Tai Chi that that any program that focuses on proximal muscle strength, flexibility, and balance will have that kind of an effect on on the injury prevention. Yes, interestingly, Bye. we were in Tokyo this year, this past year, and saw the same thing in the morning. Henry took a walk in the morning and the park was full of older adults doing these kind of slow, methodical exercises.
I think this is really starting to catch on. And, and it's a, just a good reminder that, you know, we have a, a, a woman in her 60s or 70s who comes in and has osteopenia. What do we do? We immediately reach for a prescription pad and, you know, write for a lendronate or zoledronic acid or something like that. And yet uh, we probably don't spend enough time recommending things like balance exercises and Tai Chi and yoga and, and other things that can strengthen muscles and, and, and work on balance. It, when I had a, a knee, some knee surgery a few years ago and they sent me to PT and they started doing balance exercises, I realized just how horrible my balance is. And, you know, it's really something that you, you have to work on, I think. Not that I've worked on it, but, um, you know, I think, it's, I think it's just a great reminder. There have been other studies that have found similar results. Uh, I think this is a real effect and, um, you know, certainly no harm. And um, there may be some, you know, I think some psychological benefits as well in terms of getting, uh, because we're often talking about older patients together and uh, some focus for their day and and some, there's a meditative aspect to it that I think is good. So I think it's, it's great overall. And I, I just wanted to add, Tai Chi Quan sounds like he belongs on the Jedi Council. That's, that's my Star Wars reference. For the, for totally the agree. There you go. All right. Um, Henry, it's your turn. So this next study asks the question, are long-acting progesterone-releasing contraceptive devices associated with a reduction in pelvic pain among women with endometriosis? This is by Carvalho in the December issue of Fertility and Sterility. This was a government-funded, unblinded study in 103 women with endometriosis that was confirmed surgically and histologically. If you'll recall, endometriosis it has some controversy, but regardless of the controversy, women who have this have significant amounts of um, pain and misery and fertility issues. The use of progesterones have been fairly common, although the considered gold standard is gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs. And because those are incredibly expensive and, uh, and difficult to take, people have tried to see, well, maybe some of these new progesterone-releasing intrauterine devices might be effective. And there was a study in 2011 that showed comparability. So this was a head-to-head study of two different progestin-releasing IUDs, one containing etonogesterol and the other one levonogesterol, so uh, Mirena and Implanon or um, Nexplanon. The study took place over eight, uh, over six months. Women were 18 to 45 years of age, and they used a 10-point visual analog stale, scale as their primary outcome. During the month before they inserted the IUDs, the women kept diaries with their pain scales, and they used that as their, their baseline. At the end of six months, pretty much everybody improved. They started off with a level of pain between seven and a half and eight, and they dropped down to about two, which is really a significant, clinically significant reduction. So everybody got better regardless of which one they got. The big question is whether or not this would have been better than placebo. Uh, we, We know from many other studies that There's a strong placebo response, often a 50% or more improvement in pain scales. So this is a little bit of a straw man that was um, um, 
maybe inadequate gold standard. But then there's some other methodologic pieces that are problematic. So they began with 103 and only 82 finished. And so having a 20% dropout rate really raises the potential for significantly biasing the data. Um, it, the, it was unblinded. And, and so we really do need to be, and they did not use the intention to treat analysis, by the way. So we really need to be careful in how we interpret these data. It may be true that they're equivalent, but I'm not sure this study proves it. You know, I'm, I'm surprised this was a government funded study that the, you know, you would think that, I mean, this is it, the, the methods sound like an industry funded study. And I was thinking um, the same you know, thing. It's, <laughs> it's unfortunate. It's like, really? You couldn't, you know, mask the outcome assessors. You maybe couldn't have a control group, but plus, you know, I mean, it's uh, uh, kind of odd, uh, you know, so, well, um, but it's, you know, the, on the other hand, the last half full part is the women did experience much less pain, uh, much less pain. And so, you know, I think the, the counter argument is, hey, well, maybe part of its placebo effect, probably not all of it. And it seems like both of these are, are reasonable options. Just to anyway. play, uh, not devil's advocate, but to be more enthusiastic about the results, I understand the method's limitations. But do keep in mind that women with IUDs often will complain of a bit more pelvic pain during their cycle rather than less. And the fact that they experience considerably less, I think, is moderately strong evidence. Also, endometriosis does not intend, does not tend to improve uh, spontaneously. So I, I think the results are believable. And I think that this is certainly an option to consider for women with endometriosis related pain. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to being a glass being um, half full, uh, for the women who did improve, most of the improvement was seen within the first two months. Okay, so that's good. So you have a, uh, you know how long it's going to take if they're going to get better. Yep. All right. So we have a final poem, which is mine this month, and it is Regular Sauna Bathing Reduces Cardiovascular Disease Risk. So this is from uh, a bunch of Finns. Lo Kanan is the first author and the last author, and it's in BMC Medicine. Sauna bathing is associated with reduced cardiovascular mortality and improves risk prediction in men and women, a prospective cohort study. Uh, so have you guys ever been to Finland? No, not yet. No, you should go. With, yeah, you're practically in Finland. You're, you're in the UP. So, uh, it, <laughs> you no, betcha. Honestly, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan has lots of Finns, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, there yes, are a lot of Yes, we have the Holly Eikonen Festival coming up next week. There you go. So, yeah, a lot of Finns were like, you looked around, they got to the Upper Peninsula, looked around and said, yep, looks like home. Cold as hell, lots of snow, lots of trees. So, but Finland is anyway, the happiest so place on the a country on the planet, though. No, Denmark. Denmark, Denmark. Denmark. Really? I keep hearing that it's Finland. Finland's oh, well, number two. Maybe no. it goes back and forth. <laughs> they're, they're out happying each other. Anyway, uh, so yeah, so we visited and it was kind of funny whenever we went. So we were there for about a week for a conference and then traveled around a bit. And the hotels, if you got a, even a slightly upgraded room, just not the bare bones room, you often got a sauna in your room. So I never had as many saunas as I did during that week in Finland. And it's a big thing. And there are public saunas and Many, many homes have their own sauna. So this was a, a population-based prospective cohort study in Finland to look at the effect of sauna bathing habits on the development of cardiovascular disease. Now, they are very hot in Finland, 80 to 100 degrees centigrade at the level of your head. 
talk about making your blood boil. Well, you know? that's like I mean, Arizona that's, in July. <laughs> except then they and that the, because the uh, humidity is fairly low in Finland, uh, you know, just naturally, they, that's why they add the water to the stones to increase the humidity inside. Uh, they had about 1,700 participants, 53 to 74 years of age, about half were women. Researchers looked at what their cardiovascular risk factors were and also asked them about how long and how often they saunaed and how hot the temperature was. They followed these folks for 15 years, and then they looked at cardiovascular deaths from hospital records and death certificates. Now, this obviously was not a randomized trial, so people could choose to sauna every day if they wanted to, or they could choose to never sauna. And that may be associated with other confounding factors. Maybe smokers are less likely to want to do a sauna every day. Uh, But in any case, what they found was cardiovascular disease mortality significantly decreased in a linear way with increasing sauna sessions. So as you went from once a week to seven times a week, and as your duration of minutes in the sauna increased, you had a linear inverse association with cardiovascular mortality. The rates were 10 per thousand person years if they just did it once a week, 7.6, two to three times a week, and only 2.7 for a daily sauna users. So bottom line, regular use of a sauna is inversely associated with the risk of cardiovascular disease mortality. More sessions per week, more time in the sauna uh, seem to uh, decrease the risk more. Uh, remember, they like their saunas really hot if you want to implement this at home. I think you know the, the argument in favor of causality is that they did see that kind of a dose response um, you know, association. In the article, they talked about various physiologic uh, reasons why this might be the case. I, I'm a bit skeptical. You can always find a physiological reason for anything happening, I think, uh, if you look closely enough. But um, anyway, I, I thought this was just a fun little study. And um, John, have you built a sauna outside of your house yet? No, not yet, but I guess it's time to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of, it's, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it, when we did it, it was kind of fun and you get in there and it does relax you. And, um, you know, so maybe there's something to it. Maybe it's more than just a relaxing, fun thing to do. Maybe there really is some benefit. Henry, do you believe it? Um, I'm skeptical, as you know. Um, the, it, as you I point know. out, there it's Always. we can show association, not causation, and showing a linear response, a dose response, is just one of the roll until criteria to try to establish a causal relationship between two, uh, between an exposure and an outcome. And so, you know, coming up with some biological plausibility um, is certainly an important piece to this. Now. I wonder if there may be another phenomenon that could affect this, and that is that this is actually a survivor effect. So if you start off by frying your children and people who are frail and at risk in a really hot um, bath, (laughs) that what you end up with is everybody else who can actually withstand it. (laughs) Whose blood doesn't boil or blood boils at a somewhat higher temperature, right? Uh, How about another hypothesis that it's uh, socialization and social interaction may decrease the incidence of cardiovascular disease as well? Could be. And and like I said, in Finland in particular, it is a very social thing. And, um, you know, so it's often kind of at a public bath or a public sauna. So. Could be, could be, and and maybe they, it's maybe there's an association with saunas after exercise. The the only time in my life I ever did them a lot was when I was at University of Michigan, and I would swim most days after work, and then there was a sauna, so I'd go 
going to the sauna after swimming. So maybe maybe that's part of the explanation. Anyway, saunas are good for you, or at least two of us think they're good for you. Henry's not so sure. Or, or like chicken anyway. soup, could it hoit? <laughs> could it hoit, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, I think it is, we're almost done, uh, but it's time for Henry, the quiz master, to uh, tell us the answer. All right. So which of the following are most effective in helping a cigarette smoker to quit? Uh, plain old cold turkey, substituting cigarettes with marijuana, use of e-cigarettes, nicotine gum, or stage-appropriate tailored advice. You know, we know there are many effective means to help smokers quit, but fundamentally the person needs to be ready to quit. Our role as clinicians is to help to identify those smokers who are um, ready to quit and help them find a combination of approaches based on past experience as well as current um, uh, thinking in order to be able to facilitate that. If we use the trans-theoretical model, the stages of change, if you will, those patients who say, you know, I'm really not interested in quitting, you know, our goal is not to get them to quit immediately. It's to get them to the next level where they're thinking about it. Or if the person who says, you know, I'm thinking about it, well, let's start to put together an action plan and then, you know, dealing with maintenance. So the single most important thing that we can do, though, is is get them moving to the path to cessation. Um, smoking cessation, in spite of all of the public health um data that's out there suggesting that sedentary lifestyle and other things may be becoming more prevalent as causes of cardiovascular disease to any single person who smokes. Smoking is still the single most important thing that they, um, a threat to their health. And the most important thing that they can do is to quit. Thank you, Henry. Now, I, I do remember some studies. There was one a year or two ago, maybe in poems that they randomized people to recommending cold turkey or recommending kind of a gradual extinction extinction and i think it was cold turkey that did a little better do you remember that is are you more right. of an expert that's on this correct area? yeah yeah so i remember that yeah. so each so, work but that's again it's yeah it's separate from your advice henry which is completely correct about the stage appropriate tailored advice but um and that's tailoring it to the patient i guess is that what you'd say yep yeah. So uh, we know that, and, and we do know that um, both worked, but maybe the cold turkey works just a little bit better on average. Anyway, uh, thank you, Henry. Very informative uh, quiz this time. And uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed today's uh, discussion. Please tell your friends about Primary Care Update. We'll talk to you soon with more Primary Care Updates. <laughs>